0: So Barbara kindly read us the verses for today, which we will repeat in a little while. The journey of Advent so far has taken us through hope, joy, and today's peace, and next week we finish with salvation for the fourth Sunday of Advent. Advent isn't actually mentioned in the Bible as a word like the word Trinity isn't mentioned in the Bible. Advent is hopeful expectation, awaiting of something promised. And one of the things that we have to understand when we read verses like, we we'll probably may well hear this next week, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Does anybody know who said that? Yes, well done, Edna. One of the angels, uh, do you remember, appeared to the shepherds in Luke's gospel. So Luke has the account of the angels, Matthew has the account of the Magi, the wise men. How many wise men were there? We don't know. There are three gifts. We don't have any wise men. Okay, good. So slowly, slowly, we realize that the Isaiah promise that Barbara read to us happened seven hundred years before Christ was born. Has God promised you anything? Are you prepared to wait? <laughs> seven hundred years. What? But God is never in a rush, right? This is a problem. When Paul and I first fell in love with Cyprus, it was 20 years before God moved us here. 20 years of raising family, working in secular work, uh, serving local church. We served the same local church for 30 years before we came to our second local church, which was LCC. So no jumping around from church to church no nomadic existence as a Christian, we stayed with it. And there were times when we thought that promise from God that he wanted us to go into full-time ministry had died and we gave up on it. And then, unexpectedly, he raised it back. And so when we talk about these things like hope, peace, joy, salvation, we kind of use these words in a quite a matter-of-fact way, but the problem is that when when God promises these things, he means what he says. He means what he says. This is the call on our life. And this is partly the difficulty of the Christian life is once you commit to it, then your life is no longer your own. And if you, if you continue to live in sin, then you feel this uncomfortableness with yourself. And therefore, how do we cultivate these ideas of peace, joy, hope, salvation, that are permanent residents in our lives. I think part of the song that Natan spontaneously sang about joy was joy has come to live in me. You know, it's like we want it to be a permanent residence of my life. How do we do that? And in fact, how do we do any of the things faithfully that God asks us to do, like committing to local church, which, you know, let's face it, many people get hurt in local church and leave. I mean, there's like a pilgrim of... A migrant of Christians from local churches all the time migrate into other churches because they're disappointed or wounded or whatever it is. How do you remain faithful to a church? How do you remain faithful to your prayer or to your Bible reading? These things are costly. And the devil is a murderer and a robber, John 10.10. 10. He wants to rob you of the faithfulness. He wants to rob you of that faithfulness. It's no small thing to become unfaithful. Just like it's no small thing to become unfaithful to a wife or a husband, it's no small thing to become unfaithful to God. This was Israelites' biggest problem that they prostituted themselves to other gods of the nations. And so when Jesus comes, he says in John 10:10, look, the devil's this, that, and the other. He wants to rob what God has given you, and he will rob it, and he'll take it from you if you let him. But Jesus says, but I have come that they may have what? Life more abundantly. So therefore, these ideas of Advent have to come and live in us permanently. And then we ask the question, well, how do we do that? Well, you have to make room for that. How do you make room for that? Well, it's not easy because our lives become cluttered with so many other things. This is what's so perilous about the iPhone smartphone generation, this is perilous because it clutters your mind constantly, always, always begging your attention and normally getting it. And so then you go, well, actually, I would like peace, joy, and hope, and salvation in my life, but I just don't have enough room for those, because my life is so full of other stuff. And then you go, well, actually, you're no different to Bethlehem then, when Christ was born, because Bethlehem had no room for Christ either. And then we start to think, well, actually, my life is just like the Bethlehem of new testament i don't have any room for jesus my life is too busy with other things these are true realities of christian people today why aren't you at church i'm too busy now i've got too much on why can't you pray Uh, i don't know what to pray i'm no good at praying why don't you read your Bible? Well, I try and read it before I go to sleep and I, f- I fall asleep. You know, These are common responses to the why questions of my life is falling apart. God seems distant. I'm not happy as a Christian. Why is this happening to me? Well, Hebrews says God doesn't change. So somebody's moved and it's not God. And if somebody's moved in, it's not God, and there's two of you in the relationship, who's moved? I'm no good at maths, but I can work that one out. (laughs) Isaiah 11, Barbara kindly and very well read for us, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, Their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the vipers' nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I've decided that I'm going to start a new business in Larnaca. I'm opening a zoo. (laughs) And in this zoo, I'm going to have various enclosures and I thought what it might be nice if I put a, a wolf and a lamb in one enclosure... And then a leopard and a goat in the other enclosure and a calf and a lion together and then I'm going to put a little kid in charge of the zoo. Do you think that's a good business model? <laughs> it's an unrealistic, crazy business model, right? And it doesn't work. So these verses are unrealistic. So you take an christian to these verses and they will go, what is it that you believe in exactly? <laughs> There's another part, and I think it's Isaiah, where he says, the trees of the field shall clap their hands. You take a non-Christian to those verses, they're going to think you're crazy. Uh. (laughs) So Isaiah, we remember from about, this is an approximation between chapters 1 to 39. The context is the, the Assyrian threat, the Assyrian threat to the northern tribes. And then the latter chapters towards the Babylonian threat to the Judah, tribe of Judah and the exile into captivity. So at this point, when Isaiah is saying these things, promising these things, he's saying them to a nation that's about to go into very dark times because of their own prostitution. They chose the gods of the other nations, and so those other nations came and carried them off. They gave themselves in. That's what sin does. You give yourself into sin, it will come and take you captive. You can't serve two masters. So this context of a dark time means that when these verses are uttered, the people, the hearers that hear this, they're going to be thinking, what is this promise? And of course, if you read the the, um, the broader context of chapter 11, you will know that it's talking about the root of Jesse, the, mes- the Messiah, the hope that was to come. Now, listen to this. If you want peace in your life, you have to play by God's rules. Now, that's not fun. That's not easy. The unrealistic verses that we just read, what, are they, what do they reflect in the Bible? They reflect the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden when? The Garden of Eden when God only ruled. That's what they reflect. And so this is Edenic, Edenic peace before the rebellion of Adam and his race. And Israel, why were Israel set apart from the nations? To become that holy, God-ruled people. That's simplified what it was. Israel is set apart to be holy. You, as a Christian, are set apart to be Good. You're with me. And so when we go to the first part of chapter 11, what do we read about Israel's rulers? This is what we read. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and f- the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Essentially, we could be talking about any king that reigned, ruled over Israel. Essentially, the king of of israel should be a godly man who was immersed in the torah had his own copy of the torah ultimately who are we talking about jesus so the pinnacle of israel's monarch really was seen as david david kind of had this golden age of the monarchy the reason for that is because he was a second from Saul to be king, but he united the whole of Israel. His rule encapsulated the whole of Israel. And until the time of his great unfaithfulness uh, to God with Bathsheba, he was on the up and up. I mean, he was subduing all their enemies. He was gaining enormous amounts of wealth, enough to pass on to his son to build the temple. And so David was like the pinnacle of Israel's historic monarch. 2 Samuel 17. And your house, God says to David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here is God saying, I choose you, I promise you, I make a covenant with you because you are my man. And in the second covenant, that's what God says to us. I choose you. I make a covenant with you. You are set apart. You are holy. You belong to me. You no longer behave like the other people. You are different. Now, when we get that and we immerse ourselves, not just in the Torah, but in the whole canon of Scripture, don't worry, Nathan, thank you, when we do that, then we begin to live like God rules over us. And we inherit that eternal kingdom through Christ. Uh, Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. I hope that when you go home and live out the Christian life that your family benefits. I hope your husband and wife benefit. I hope your children benefit. Because essentially, you're living out a life of love. And where there's love, you don't need the police to get involved. Well, of course, unless it's an inappropriate love, which isn't a godly love. If it's a selfish love, of course you might need the police to be involved. But God is love. And when these people live out that to the fullest, loving God and loving one another, there's no need to get the police round. Now, my wife come from a home of violence. Her mom and dad beat each other up and the police were often round for all the wrong reasons. If you live in a violent home and you become a Christian, that home should change from violence to peace or at least you should do the things that cultivate peace. So here's the peace, right? Here's the peace, And you have these kings come. And you might even have kings, like, let's talk about Queen Elizabeth, right? Queen Elizabeth united the Commonwealth. She was seen as faithful to her role, faithful to her husband, really an incredibly, what would you say, a dependable character within the reigns of monarchs. Okay, and she represented something of faithfulness to her responsibilities, for sure. You, at the very least, you could say that. And say she brought peace, say she brought peace to the things that she w- was influence, influential over, Th- there's, a big, there's a bigger problem for Queen Elizabeth. There's a bigger threat to the peace that she brought than she could deal with. And any human leader... King, president, prime minister, whatever you call them, any human leader that brings peace to a nation or a continent, they have an enemy. Do you know what that enemy is? A more real enemy, not a more real, but uh, something, something that Satan does, something that's a consequence of the Garden Rebellion. Death. Death. I don't know if you made this connection, is the enemy of peace. I'll tell you why. Let's talk about this. There's a problem with dying, and it's not just the fact that we die, which doesn't sound very nice, but when somebody establishes peace, if you have a good person, I mean, you will know this. If you've known a good Christian, faithful person, I knew a Welsh guy. And he he was a he was a man so full of the spirit of God. And I remember one day, I was telling Natan this recently. One day I go and see visit this man with my friend, and he was blind, and um, but he was like full of the Lord, and I go and talk to him, and I was about 19, 20, and I'd just become a Christian at 16. And this one time he leapt off his seat and he, he threw his arms over me and he prayed over me like just out of the blue, like shockingly, like dynamically. Scared me, actually. But he just jumped over and prayed. And I think in that moment, God just lit something in my heart that wasn't there before in that moment. And that guy eventually died. And the earth is losing people like this all the time, faithful men and women of God. We read it the struggles in the New Testament, when apostles were dying, good people were dying, and people were saying, where is Jesus? Why are these people dying away? And so the the enemy that people were struggling with, and even today, is death. Death destroys peace. In addition, it brings a sense of, for non-believers, it brings a sense of nihilistic behavior. Let me read you a quote. I hope I get this in context, because I don't want to do anybody a just service. But I don't know if anybody will know, maybe some of the younger people will. Billie Eilish, is um, an American singer-songwriter. She's about 21 years old, something like that. She said this about her life. The fact that I'm going to die one day, and then everyone around me is going to die, and no one will remember me, uh, remember me after a certain point, makes me feel so good. Because I could do the very best thing in the world and nobody would ever remember it. And I'll die and it won't matter and everyone else around me will die and it won't matter. Or I could do the very worst thing in the world and that won't matter because I'll die eventually. Now, she seems like a, a woman that cares for sure. She cares. And she's, no doubt she's got her own Issues, for sure, like all of us do. But do you read in those sentences a sense of purposelessness? Hopelessness? This nihilism that God doesn't exist. God is dead. There's no higher purpose in life. And so when you make yourself God, your God dies with you, basically. And that's it. And whatever you've done... Is just wiped off the face of the earth. This is what happens with this philosophy. And this philosophy, ladies and gentlemen, is being fed to our generation constantly. The problem is the truth is the opposite of that. And how scary at the moment of death when you realize you're not dead. I often think about people unbelievers who pass, the moment when their soul leaves their body and they realize, oh. Every human leader is sinful. That means every human leader will die. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is, but Christ died and lives. And so here's the huge turn. The Edenic Edenic peace that we just read about in Isaiah is still alive and possible because Christ died and lives. So that becomes a pattern for everybody who's under his rule. You're going to die, but you're going to live. And you're not going to live in separation to God. You're going to live with God. You're going to live with him and reign with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And so death came to Eden through Adam. But now life comes to the whole world because of Christ. And this is the gospel. That people are living in darkness and now they can know light. So when an, an enemy is attacking, somebody like death is attacking, and you know he's attacking because every day you look in the mirror and you go, death is coming for me, I can see it. And the older you get, the clearer you see it. Right? Death is coming for me, I can really see it. He's like, he's behind me. And that's what it's like for people who don't have any hope beyond death. You know, they, they hang on to this life. And that's a hard thing to see when people are on the deathbeds and they're so scared of letting go of the little bit of life that they have left because they don't know the truth. But Christ came and he has defeated death. Now, if you have somebody, a ruler, who reigns over a country and brings peace to that country, it isn't just the king that benefits, the whole country benefits He's defeated the enemy of the whole of the country. That's what David did. He defeated the enemy of Israel. And Israel as a whole benefited because David defeated the enemy. Therefore, you and I benefit because Jesus has defeated death. And so death isn't coming for us. It can't come for us. It can never have us because Jesus has already got us. Of course. We experience sin, which has been cut away from us. We experience death because death is part of the natural order of this world. But we will not die when we will die. We will, in fact, continue to live. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? That you will die. That you're done that your life is, in fact futile because you are separated from God and there is no hope for you. You've been set free from that law. Romans 8, 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Why is it life and peace? Because the, the greatest thing that you possess can never, ever be taken away from you. So you don't lose peace, you don't lose sleep over it, you lose sleep over temporal things that can be taken from you. That's why when you have Christians that are focused on the flesh, they worry and are anxious and they are robbed of the joy and peace that we sang about because you are focused on the temporary that can be taken and not on the eternal which cannot be taken. So when you have men and women incarcerated in awful situations and they have faith in God or they come to faith in God in awful situations, you will find within them a deep peace and joy in their testimony because they have set their sights on the eternal and not the temporary. Everything has been taken from them. They, they, nothing is left to be taken from them except their very lives. And like Paul said, whether to live or die, It's a win win situation. That's an excursus to talk about death to bring us back to our verses. Peace really then is this it's knowing the truth. That's where your peace comes from, to know the truth. Now let me say this as a this is a side effect of God's reign. God is not going to allow temporary things to matter more to you than he does. And if they do, then you're going to lose those temporary... Ble- what, if, what do you want to call them a blessing if they if they dethrone God? If God is on the throne of your life, he's, he's number one, then peace all the way. But if you have taken God off and you've got something else above him that matters more to you than he does then then your peace is going to be in somewhat of the disarray situation because you're looking for peace in the wrong places. And God is going to try and get you off that idea. So this power of a wolf and a lamb and a leopard and a goat and a calf and a lion and a little child and a cow and a bear and a cobra and a viper, all being rumours together, the power for that is only in the new kingdom. So if you get to heaven and there you are in this glorious place and in the distance you see a lion walking towards you. (laughs) I mean, I'm no good with big dogs. In fact, I'm no good with big cats. (laughs) In fact, I'm no good with animals. You know, I hope there's no animals in heaven. Okay, that puts me in a bad place. I know, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) I just say that for fun, really, but I hope there's not. Anyway, (laughs) say there's a a lion coming towards you. You've just died and you're in heaven and you're kind of getting your foot and there's a big lion coming towards you. What do you think is going to happen? He's not going to eat you because he's a vegetarian. (laughs) That's why all vegetarians are the best people in the world. And the reason, the reason for that is this, in verse 9b, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. What does it do to know God? Well, it it shouldn't make you religious. It shouldn't make you judgmental. It shouldn't make you pious. It shouldn't make you less attractive. It shouldn't make you isolated so you've got no friends. It should do the opposite of those things. You should attract people. Because there's nobody more beautiful than Jesus. And okay, his teaching is difficult, and he lost people because of his teaching. But the whole point is that you gather people so you can share the gospel. That's the whole point. Why are you generous? Why would you take your neighbor a Christmas gift when actually all they've done is complain about your dog? (laughs) You do that because you're generous. You want to bless them regardless of the arguments. And so this is what Israel is told at the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 3. The ox knows its master, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And that can be said of us when we're living at loggerheads with the rule and reign of God. King Ahaz, I think, was on the throne when when we're talking about our passage today. And Ahaz was an evil, ungodly king. There were better kings to come, like Hezekiah, like Josiah. But whether they were good or bad, death still had them. And so Israel needed a king that could defeat death. And his name is Jesus. If we choose to live under the eternal reign of Christ, peace lives in us. If we choose to do that. If you're wrestling with sin, you're wrestling with sin and you won't know peace. If you only half believe this message, you won't know peace because you're like a double-minded man or woman. You don't know what you believe. Peace means being all in with Jesus. There's no other way. And once you have that peace, it cannot be oosted by death because death is defeated. So it's the opposite to the quote we had from Billy earlier. The truth is opposite to what she thinks. It's opposite. Her philosophy is flawed and wrong. Death actually brings accountability for everything we have ever done. And everything we do matters and has eternal consequences. Everything matters because death is not the end. It's a deception, it's a lie. Satan is a liar, a murderer. He has been from the beginning. He lied in the garden that brought the consequence of death in the first place. So here's three active steps to godly peace. Number one, three things to know to have peace for Advent and beyond number one you need to be filled with the spirit of god you need to be filled with the spirit of god how 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 are you filled with the spirit of god you ask and you ask and you live out righteousness and you live out obedience and you ask and you ask and god will fill you this is the supreme verse for the leader In verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Ultimately, he's talking about Christ. But Christ wasn't the only one who had the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was at creation, do you remember? Hovering over the waters. Moses said he, he longed for all the people to have the Spirit of God in numbers. And then Christ came, and at his baptism, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Christ said, I promise that all of my followers will have the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost was the delivery of that promise. Peace is living a spirit-powered life. You cannot have it any other way. Number two. Three steps to peace. Number two is the fear of God. Hang on. I shouldn't be afraid of anything. Perfect love casts out fear. (laughs) If you don't fear anything fear this fear god even jesus says don't fear a man who can destroy the body but fear god who can destroy the soul what is this fear of god well it's this conscious knowing that god is watching and he is ultimately your judge as much as he is your savior do you fear your parents i feared my parents at times i still fear them a little bit today actually if I forget to phone, do you fear your parents? You should fear your parents. There's a healthiness to fear that keeps us in track. Was it Peter that says, you know, um, you should fear the authorities if you're doing wrong? You should fear them if you're speeding. You've seen these new cameras they have in Cyprus now in the back of white vans? Have you seen them? Yeah. So I've been nearly caught twice. <laughs> So they park these little, like unmarked white vans in, in laybys and they're filled with cameras in the back and they're literally mobile speed cameras that will take your registration and then you get fined a couple of weeks later. Now, I don't need to fear those cameras if I'm obedient to the law, but if I stray from the law, then I should fear the consequence of those cameras, right? This is exactly the same. You need to fear God, it keeps you in check the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 3, and his delight, this is the king, ultimately the Messiah, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. To live beyond selfishness requires a bigger understanding and a greater fear for life than yourself. If you think that everything that you have is based on temporary stuff, why would you ever live a selfless life? If you didn't think that death was any consequence, why would you even care about other people? Selfless living is about the call to justice and serving the poor at a costly extent. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. We have to fear the Lord. Number three, the knowledge of God. The spirit of knowledge has to be in you. What did Jesus say? The Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. The spirit will come and lead you into all truth. And we need to know this knowledge, this truth about God. If we increase in our understanding of the word, it is a side effect of reading this book. Truth embedded in your life is a side effect of reading this book. How many times have we said that on a Sunday morning? And so, <clears throat> these things, being, uh, being godly, being righteous, it's not just some kind of personal self-help thing. It's about falling under the reign of your creator and living perfectly, harmoniously with the whole of creation. And the Prince of Peace, who is a person, comes and abides in you. Finally, to end, let's bridge the context completely by saying this: Isaiah six eight. Sorry, Isaiah uh, verses six to eight of our chapter is a village scene. Simple huts, mud floors, human beings with living with animals. People still live like this today, in close proximity with animals. We live with a cat. We know what it's like. And some who live in the world today, they are in bitter conflict with hostile nature. What does that mean? I mean that at any moment, our cat can attack us. (laughs) (laughs) And it does. It does attack us, doesn't it, Paul? It attacks us. Violently, viciously, ruthlessly attacks us. Now, in other parts of the world, people are eaten by lions, in India, uh, many, many children die from snake bites every year. It's still a thing. You know, we are in such a sanitized state in the West, it, here in Cyprus. We don't have any, any animals except cats attacking us. I actually went running this one time, and a cat attacked me while I was running. A cat attacked me while I it clawed my ankles. <laughs> Okay, all right then, enough of cats. But the point is this, when, when we come to this Eden picture that look, feels like Genesis 1-1 in Isaiah's passage, what does this mean? It means that God is going to tame all his enemies. And the greatest is death, but all of them will fall before God. You can have peace. God is going to deal with all your enemies. And you go, yeah, but what about what she said? Or what about what he did? Or what about that? Or what about Pastor Dave? Or what about his cat? Don't worry about my cat. Because Olive's got what's coming to her. <laughs> you heard of a thing called final judgment? It's for all of us. All of us. And so the peace that ensues is to have no in your life. If you have no threat, then you have all peace. If you have no threat, you have all peace. And so, back to our verse, Advent verse, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. How do you please the Lord? You live out his rule. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I, that lovely hymn comes to mind, All Things Bright and Beautiful. All Things Bright and Beautiful. And Lord, the, the fullness of creation, even now we can incredibly, massively enjoy creation, even with the corrupted nature of itself. And people go to extreme lengths to investigate nature and to live with wild animals and to film them and to risk their lives because they could be eaten or bitten or whatever. And yet a day is coming when the glory of your initial creation will be returned. And the lion will lie with the lamb. And a child will play with a viper's nest. These unrealistic terms, they're a picture of your ultimate peace. But thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, that we can experience that today. If we let go of the temporary and we hold on to that which is eternal, then we can know peace. And Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world. And so we are made holy and set apart and we stand different from the world. Because we have been called and chosen by a living and beautiful Savior. Amen.